you have to imagine crazy things in order to take the next steps. It all begins with imagination. Welcome to What the If. It's so good to have you back. If you've been here before, there's two kinds of listeners. You who have been here before and have come back and keep coming back and you subscribe. And then there's also you who just tuned in for the first time. Tuned in, as we used to say back back in my day. Yeah, but we do still say that. Yeah. Yeah. I guess they I tune in now, right? I, oh, oh, it's <laughs> <laughs> good. Thank you for I tuning in or Android tuning in, whatever the equivalent is. Welcome to What the If. This is a fun show. I look forward to this every week. We've done 70 episodes so far. This is our 71st, which means that the show is now eligible for a. RP discounts. I can just show my what the if ID when I'm at McDonald's or something and get a discount. Yeah, we need to create a club. Yeah, we need membership. That would be excellent. I'm Philip Shane, documentary filmmaker. That silence you heard was my brain spooling up, as they used to say on Battlestar Galactica. Getting ready to go to light speed, but it took some time. Yes, and uh, just like Battle, the the uh, newer version of the Battlestar Galactica, n- I'm not fully networked, you know, uh, to avoid. That's good. Yeah, so the Cylons can't take you over. Exactly. My brain is <laughs> different parts of my brain stay separated, but nonetheless, here we are. Matt, how are you? Are you feeling lively this fine morning? I am a wee sick this morning, Ooh. so less less lively than usual. Oh, sorry to hear that. In spite of that, we will dive into your... We will dive beneath the sickness into the knowledge base, which is, I believe, safely, in, in your mind, safely walled off. Uh, well, we will see what the blood-brain barrier uh, can do for us today. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. exactly. I'm very excited because this week we have another suggestion from our audience sent in to feedback at whattheif.com. This person named Mike Holland of um, Milwaukee. Milwaukee, Wisconsin, a fine place. He sent in something to feedback at whattheif.com. And so, because we're using his idea, Mike, you will receive an amazing finger puppet. I was unfamiliar with the concept of finger puppets. What? Yes, I don't know. Was I? How could that be? Maybe a <laughs> sad childhood where puppets... Were puppets were Muppets or something, you know? Yeah, that's right. Were puppets denied in your household? Perhaps I was spoiled, and we only had giant puppets that 
you know, one finger? What kind of puppet is that? Wow. Yeah, they were probably banned, though. No, it was, I was hardly spoiled. Shout out to my mom. Hey! <laughs> and my dad, if, if, if any of my four parents, if they're listening. Why didn't we get finger puppets? Hanukkah's coming up, and I think that finger puppets would be a fantastic gift, because you could do eight. You could do a finger puppet each night of Hanukkah. Yep, that's right, and gradually set them on fire. <laughs> fantastic. Now, that's a YouTube channel, if ever I... <laughs> I'm going to do that. It's a pyromaniac Hanukkah, as it should be. Anyway, sorry, we're, we're spooling out of control here. Our light speed guidance system. I'm going to hit the guidance system as they do on the uh, Millennium Falcon. There we go. Knock it back into shape. And yep. uh, Mike's idea is... Global warming uh, continues to be a frightening story in the news, but also confusing. And so it's still it's still hard for people to grasp. I am going to confess as well that I kind of get it, like it's kind of happening, and I can explain to other people enough to at least say, well, there's more storms, and you, you see how we're getting more powerful storms, like the frequency of more powerful storms and fires and rain and, you know, floods or whatever, is definitely increasing. And aside from that, however, it's still hard to, do you find that hard to envision? Like the concept is not easy. It's not. I mean, it's, it's the scale of it is different than what we usually interact with. It's not something you can demonstrate in a laboratory. And this is a problem for anything ecological scaled is that sort of by definition, it's beyond experience of one person. So you can't see it directly. So you have to use a lot of inferential reasoning and thinking about how to assemble information from different sources. The question of whether humans are causing it or not can be a separate issue, although it's an important, it's, I don't know, almost the most important or it's tied for most important because if it's humans causing it, it means humans could possibly fix it. Right, yeah. And this is, you know, this is a, a, a touches on a deeper question of causality. What do we, how, how do we decide when, something causes something else. And that turns out to be a slipperier concept than we might like. So specifically Mike's question was, he noted that obviously scientists are now virtually uniform. Although the fact that I have to qualify that at all would confuse some people, right? Mm -hmm. Let's, let's call it unanimous. We have, we have consensus. Very solid consensus that people are, are, have caused, I suppose from the Industrial Revolution onward, put, put so much stuff in the environment, especially into the air, that we've created this global warming phenomenon, which is going to spiral out of control if we don't do anything. However, what Mike pointed out was that it couldn't have always been that way. 
So was what was the battle in the scientific community? How long did that take? Was it controversial at some point? Like, for instance, the idea that the dinosaurs were killed by an asteroid or that the continents float around plate tectonics. These, these sort of ideas were controversial at the beginning. So, yeah, so there's a few different things that have to come together before climate change is, is something that, you know, you could have consensus about. So one, one aspect of this is at what point do scientists understand the process? That's what we often call the greenhouse effect, right? Which is not, not well named, but um, that's what we've got. And that's actually known since the 1880s or so that if you pump carbon dioxide into a container of regular atmosphere, it will tend to trap heat and, and increase further. Right? So it's known that this is a thing that, that could occur. Now, do we know who that was, who, who did that experiment? Yeah, it was this uh, Irish physicist named John Tyndall, who's largely forgotten now, but at the time was one of the, the great public scientists of the day. He was at the Royal Institution in London, where he would give regular public lectures on the science of the day. And he's sort of one of the great, let's see here, public experimenters. He was very good at setting up demonstrations to, to, to show whatever concept he was talking about. Interesting. There is a great tradition in, in the, among the Irish in Ireland of good storytelling. Yes, I suppose so. <laughs> Could have helped him. That's interesting. So he was he kind of called Carl Sagan of his day, or it was the yeah, that's a good way to think about it. Yep. And also, a bit of an iconoclast, so got in a lot of trouble for attacking institutional religion and clerical authority. Oh, wow! All right, a rebel. Uh, definitely a rebel. Yep. And so one day he decided, hmm. What what happens if I do this? Well, so he was he was interested in this the, the general problem of the transfer of heat. How does heat get from place to place? And one of the things he did was 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 messing with the the atmospheric composition between points A and B, and he found that carbon dioxide uh, and methane could have this effect of trapping heat. So so that's an interesting thing that you know you just know in the laboratory but doesn't obviously have global significance but then by the 19 teens or so scientists are starting to to realize how much carbon dioxide is getting pumped into the atmosphere from uh, industrialization and this is you know a side effect of the the general awareness of air pollution you know, this is the era of the uh, the great fog in London and the, the discovery that urban populations uh, are contracting, say, lung disease at, at high rates. Now, just that, just for instance, the London fog, I, I don't know how many people understand that, if, if, I if I'm correct, right, it wasn't actually fog? That's right. We'd probably call it smog today. So it's, uh, it's a, a, a cloud caused by air pollution from factories and such that killed, I think, dozens of people, if I remember right. Oh, wow. 
And how how long would it last? It lasted for days. And it was common? It happened every now and then. Okay. So it was like a bad, we would, ha- we would have an air alert. In fact, like sort of is happening uh, sometimes due to fires in, on the West Coast or in Beijing from actual pollution, sure. right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Beijing's a good analogy because it's, it's kind of hard to remember what the air was like before we had regulations for things like pollutants in the air. So in parts of China, they don't have those regulations, so we can go back and see. And it is quite horrifying to experience, actually, to have the, the actual air around you, you know, burn your lungs. Although, interestingly, uh, uh, on a less extreme note, I went to Mexico for the first time, went to Mexico City. But it must have been back in the 90s, I think. And so I'm not sure if things have changed there. But at that time, they did not, and Mexico did not have controls on car emissions like yeah. we have here. Mm-hmm. My first thing I noticed when I like got out of the plane or was walking around the city was like, there's some kind of smell. Um, there was no fog or anything. It was just like the, the smell, like, oh, the smell of the smoke and thing, or the cars, whatever. It just smells different. And it actually smelled good <laughs> or better. There was Whoa, something weird. sickly, I don't know. I found it pleasant. Wow. Yeah, that's weird. Yeah, <laughs> um, that may just be me. It's so, weird. Everything else about yes. that might be normal. It's just that I. Uh, mm-hmm. What's my just penchant you. for carbon monoxide? <laughs> <laughs> so by the early 20th century, we've got two critical elements in place. One is the realization that human activity has put a lot of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and second, that carbon dioxide can have a warming effect. But that's not th- those two things by themselves aren't quite enough to create the notion of global warming per se. That is actually being worried about something occurring. So it's just it's a it's a possibility. We understand this is a thing that could happen. So the main the main just to clarify the main focus there was like local. Yes, the the science of thinking about the environment of the Earth as a whole was still fairly undeveloped. So it isn't until, say, the 60s and 70s that that it becomes standard for scientists to think about the global scale of these kinds of processes. And one of the problems of doing that kind of science, that kind of global science, is that you can't do experiments on the whole planet. <laughs> right? So if I want to do experiments on on the biological effect of a particular chemical, I get a thousand rats and I test them all and I see what happens to them, right? But if I want to know what the planetary effect of that chemical is, I don't have a thousand planets to try it out on. So I have to do something else. So one of the the tools that come to be developed are computer simulations. So you create a computer version of a planet and test your thing on that and see what happens there. The problem is that the Earth is a pretty complicated system and it's rather difficult to write a good simulation for simulating the whole thing. So as always with simulations, you have to pick some things you you can drop and some things you do want to simulate. 
So the, the early versions of these models, these computer models in the 70s, would typically take one layer of the atmosphere and study that. Like one layer, like one, like a certain altitude or? Well, it's, it's what's called a, a one-dimensional model. So if you imagine, let's see here, think of it as a vertical slice through the atmosphere. Okay. So air can, air can go up and down, but it can't go left or right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So what that lets you do is study, that's very good for studying the transport of heat because heat involves, you know, the hot air going up and the cold air going down. So it's, a, it's an almost unbelievably primitive model <laughs> yeah. by our, our current standard. But I'm guessing it was the limits of the supercomputers at the time, or computers or supercomputers at the, the time. Yep, that's right. Yeah, this was back when a powerful computer was an entire building. Wow, an entire building. Yeah, and still could only simulate that little slice of the atmosphere. So these early models suggest that the atmosphere would be warming given the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and that this would continue fairly quickly. But it's a one-dimensional model. So eh, as well, all right, so that's an interesting suggestion, but certainly not fully convincing. And and was the feeling, like, do you think they were, were they alarmed or was it like, well, that's such an unusual result that like if one of these computers spits out one of the it prints out a paper tape out and they look at it the answer is 42 they're like oh my god 42 this is terrible or are they like well this, we don't know they're like there's no cause for alarm they were alarmed but there were so many good things to be alarmed about in the 1970s, uh, that this was just one of many things, right? So it took a backseat to industrial pollutants, you know, Silent Spring style, overpopulation concerns, concerns about diminishing resources. This is the era of the gas crisis, and not to mention, you know, imminent thermonuclear war. And the rise of disco. So. <laughs> The BGs get stacked right on top of a lot of of trouble happening all at once. Yeah. But actually, so these these computer models come to be called uh, general circulation models. Circulation in the sense of movement of atmosphere around, or GCMs for short. And they get a big boost from Carl Sagan, actually. So Sagan is interested in these models because he's studying Mars. And this is before he's famous, famous. He's studying Mars. And one of the problems with Mars is that you get these enormous dust storms in the atmosphere. And the dust kind of hangs there for sometimes months at a time. And that's a problem if you're an astronomer trying to look at the surface or trying to communicate with the robotic landers or whatnot. So uh, Sagan and his friends use these GCMs to calculate how long the dust will last, the dust storms will last, that is how long it will stay in the atmosphere. And it's pretty good for that. And then right around the same time, 
the Cold War heats up again because Ronald Reagan gets selected and sort of this newly belligerent rhetoric that the Reagan administration is using. So some folks get the idea to calculate what the atmospheric effects of a nuclear war might be. So one of the effects you would get from a nuclear war is that lots of cities would burn and generate lots of soot. So Sagan and his friends start using the general circulation models not to calculate Martian dust or carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, but rather the ash from cities destroyed by nuclear weapons and how long that would stay in the atmosphere. Whoa. And it turns out that it stays in the atmosphere for a long time and blocks light from the sun coming down, which then disrupts the photosynthesis, which crushes the food chain and so on. And this is the origin of the idea of nuclear winter. So Sagan is out there warning people that these general circulation models have predicted this nuclear winter phenomenon. And people are very upset about this for lots of different reasons. Some people are actually worried or genuinely worried about the effect. Other people, many scientists, criticize these models. And they say, no, it's too primitive a model to make such a calculation for. So there's suddenly enormous pressure on scientists to improve their GCMs to make better computer models. So the one-dimensional model becomes two-dimensional models, and two-dimensional models become three-dimensional models. And a lot of this impetus comes from this political argument over nuclear winter. But by the late 80s, both, both computers have gotten a lot more powerful, and scientists have spent a lot of time making their GCMs better as well. So by the late 80s, early 90s, there are now very good computer models for the Earth's atmosphere. 20, 20 years later, or 20, yeah, from when? From yeah, depending on sort of how you want to pick your 10 to your 20 start. years later, yeah. It, yeah. It took to, to go. And was it that because a whole lot, many, many, many more scientists jumped on the problem that allowed this? Yes, yeah. So more scientists are interested in it. More resources are put into it as well. There, there's more of a sense of this is an important problem that we should be tackling. It's fascinating that there was this kind of part of it was, you know, it, people, people always say, well, what's the point of studying Mars? I mean, here's, mm -hmm. it just happens to be an interesting thing where <laughs> at least part of the one group of scientists uh, was drawn to do that because of, of just trying to figure out what's going on on Mars. And to talk about nuclear winter, I mean, talk about human-caused... <laughs> That would clearly be human. Exactly, right? Caused. And, and some of the, the criticisms of nuclear winter are similar to ones we hear for global warming as well. There's the sense that the Earth is so big that human action couldn't possibly affect it on a global scale. And nuclear winter then is a, a great counterexample. You say, look, we've got this phenomenon right here that shows that humans can do this. So... If you're persuaded by that, let's look at other possibilities. Right. And also it's it's the public that's easy for the public, of which I consider myself a member, to grasp because it's like so, you know, there's a difference between a chronic condition, which is what climate change is now, we might say, and an acute 
condition, right? It's like right. So just everyone can imagine nuclear bombs, easy, and mm-hmm. we do it all too often. And it's literally like, as they say, nonlinear. Boom, <laughs> we switch from one uh, state to another. And we've seen those, cl- you know, you see the mushroom clouds. It's like obvious that like, that's not good. Yeah, exactly. And it's, you know, nuclear winter is the destruction of civilization or possibly our entire species, right? So it's, it grabs your attention right away in a way that three degrees of warming might not. Was this also the time that, like the idea of the dinosaurs being killed by an asteroid, right? We know it isn't because the asteroid hit the dinosaurs, although there might have been a couple they were unfortunate enough to be on ground zero. That's right. Some really unlucky dinosaur. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, so it's precisely the same time and precisely the same computer models as well. Because for all of these situations, nuclear winter, global warming, death of the dinosaurs, the critical issue is how does stuff stay in the atmosphere and what effect does that have? So you're using the same scientific tools, these general circulation models. Yeah, so if you get rid of general circulation models, all of those things go away. You wouldn't, in other words, you wouldn't understand it. You wouldn't even right. be aware of it. And they're and they're all sort of mutually reinforcing too, right? So the people studying the death of the dinosaurs provide tools and information that's then useful for Sagan to talk about nuclear winter. And Sagan's work in nuclear winter provides tools that are useful for the people studying global warming. And then the people studying global warming provide tools that the dinosaur people can then use. And this is really one of the interesting things that that makes science work well is this kind of crosstalk between different sub-disciplines because you get different groups of people coming with different ideas. And you, because if, if, if you only talk to people who are already doing the same thing you are, you get this kind of closed-mindedness. So occasionally you need some weirdo to come in with a totally different perspective and suggest something to you. And sometimes that doesn't help, but sometimes it does. Yeah. How big was Sagan's influence at that time? Like you said, he wasn't famous yet. Well, so this is the the story I was just telling kind of bridges the time of his fame. So he's studying Mars before he's famous. He's doing nuclear winter after. And that's not an accident because it isn't until he's famous that people are willing to listen to him. He, he doesn't have the cultural pull until he can do that. And then he uses that. He unapologetically says, I'm famous. I'm going to use this platform I have to argue for something I really care about. The survival of the species. It's not, I suppose, a coincidence that the space program is looking at Mars and thinking about it on a global scale. At the same time, you know, satellites are going up for the first time around Earth and, and being able to look at, think about planets as planets. Yeah, exactly. And there's been a fair bit written about this. You know, the power of seeing those first photos from space of the Earth as a whole really had a remarkable impact on the way people thought. It became possible to think about global things in a way that it wasn't before. Yeah, that's interesting. Because I will 
mention that, by the way, if, if, if you are new or if you, you didn't hear it, uh, just a few episodes back, we talked about what will happen when people actually be able to go, start to go, when the public is able to go into space and see the Earth floating there with their own eyes in the way the, we, only the astronauts have done so far. And then the power of that photograph, that very particular, that photograph called Earthrise, of the Earth rising over the moon mm-hmm. from the Apollo astronauts, was the first time people could look at a photograph. Like, I'm sure there were paintings and drawings and movies that showed these things, but to be able to see an actual photograph showing it that way. And I feel like that, the power of that photograph has died. Well, it's become, it's become ordinary now. Yeah, it's no big deal. Once you're on t-shirts, forget it. Yes, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) And you know, you can call up Google Earth on your phone anytime you want. So it's not, not as big a deal. Maybe, maybe VR will help. Like when we start getting 360, I already have like 360 stuff. You can put on VR glasses and goggles or whatever and and look at the space station for instance and stuff like that so maybe that'll so what's happening here is we really don't this is part again this is a cliffhanger this is a big cliffhanger will if we put ourselves in the time you know back into the mind of the people at the time what's going to happen here i mean are are the scientists so we we just got to the point especially with nuclear winter are the scientists so everyone jumped on board and did all this research you know prompted by the idea of nuclear winter and nuclear war the, the effects of nuclear war but is there a group of them that are also saying nuclear war yeah that's that's like a bad thing but that's a hopefully rare thing but there's this other thing that's happening Regardless of war, it's happening every single day. Factories are pumping out stuff that's going to kill us. There's different ways to think about threats and risks. You've got something like nuclear war that would happen all at once and have an enormous effect. The human brain sort of grocks that danger in a particular way. But then there's long-term effects like global warming, that doesn't have a sudden change, but rather the changes are fairly subtle. And that is harder to understand, sort of accept the threat of. So scientists realize this this asymmetry. So even though global warming might end up killing more people than nuclear war, it's not seen as, as much of a threat. Actually, a whole new field called risk analysis comes out of this realization, oh, this, sure. this problem. So there's a whole field of you know, mathematical statistics, of, of risk analysis, risk assessment, that's supposed to help us deal with this problem that is rationally decide among different dangers and threats that our brains aren't naturally good at handling. Now, I'm guessing that is gone into economics and stuff like that too is that something exactly yeah it's because it's based on because the the critical issue here is human decision making what will what what do people decide to do based on this risk and decision making is essentially an economic problem risk versus reward it's something we all 
it's should you buy that lotto ticket? Yeah. And at a certain point, <laughs> a certain point, the reward so outweighs the risk mm-hmm. <laughs> that you do it. You're a sucker like all of the rest of them, except for those few people. Yeah, so, so this is interesting in, in terms of what the if. This is like, again, we, we mentioned last week how we keep finding new genres of what the if, different ways yeah. to explore things. And this is sort of putting ourselves in the mind of the scientists and, you know, ordinary activists or, or people who, who are interested in what's in, in the environment and what's happening putting yourself in, in their mind, and they were saying, this was like, like, what the if? Global warming, for instance, is one of the biggest what the ifs ever. <laughs> it is, yeah, sorry, it's just, it's a, it's a really elaborate what the if, yeah. It has so many, I mean, just the, we, we, oh, Mars, you know, Mars came in, studying Mars came into this, was an influence, and then nuclear weapons, and then you get this risk analysis field that evolves from that. Carl Sagan popularizes turtlenecks, I imagine, corduroy jackets in a way that had never <laughs> been seen before. Global warming, you know, sexy heat. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Just if you don't have any idea what I'm talking about, or if you haven't looked at Carl Sagan in a while, Google some pictures. You should go do so. Yeah. Put on your turtleneck and go. Yeah. And then I think maybe play some Neil Diamond. <laughs> it seems to go hand in hand. So, yeah, we, we will continue. We're going to, this is a, ama- I mean, imagine being, here's what I'm imagining being. Here's a dramatic perspective would be a scientist working on the nuclear winter thing. And you've had to, you, you began, you, you were one of the early pioneers in this. You were looking at the, the one-dimensional model of the atmosphere or whatever. You were just thinking in terms of pollution around the world. Is that going right. to heat up the planet? Then you get, but you, it's hard to get money for that. Nobody really, it's like, eh, it's kind of a bummer. Also, I imagine that just like now, you know, major industry wouldn't be interested in you looking for problems they're causing about the planet. So, but all of a sudden this nuclear winter idea comes around and suddenly you get a lot of funding and then you're given a project. You're like, well, we'll study nuclear winter. Okay, well, let's do that. But in the back of their mind, they're like, wait, you know, this could be either a distraction or it's like the white elephant, what do you call it? The elephant in the room, as far mm-hmm. as they're concerned. Like it doesn't matter. This nuclear winter business doesn't matter because they know or they they think, they hypothesize that this is coming anyway. You know, it's simply a race between will nuclear winter destroy the planet? What's going to to destroy us first? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so next, when we pick this up again next week in part two of what the if humans destroyed their own planet. It sounds like, I mean, we were talking about nuclear winter, so that's a little bit confusing, right? Yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah, and that's something we can talk about next time, how it is that the same phenomenon creates both cooling and heating. What will destroy the planet, winter or summer? <laughs> <laughs> will we need parka, parkas or will we need... 
cold showers <laughs> everywhere. Cold, cold water misting everywhere. God knows what that would do to the planet as well. Oh, this is great. See, this is very interesting too because I feel like I don't hear it discussed in this. Like, I, I haven't seen a lot about how we got to this point. And it helps actually in feeling, in a way, saying being convinced or just understanding how we got to this is very helpful. You know, yeah, I think a, so. Yeah. As opposed to just getting this news and having no yeah, idea what dropped on you. Yeah. Exactly. It's like somebody, that's where it feels like opinion. You know, just, it's like the equivalent of being in, sitting at a bar and then the guy next to you and says, you know, the planet's warm, like on Cheers. What was his name? Not Norm, but Cliff, uh, Cliff. Oh yeah, Cliff Clavin. Little, Cliff Clavin, little known fact. It's a guy sitting next to you at the bar. Little known fact, uh, the planet is heating up and we're all going to die. And it's just like, what? That just comes to you. Whereas if you understood Cliff Clavin was actually Dr. Cliff Clavin of NASA and has been studying this for many, many years, you'd see beyond the turtleneck and take him more seriously. Beyond the turtleneck, we have a Beyond title. the turtleneck would be a good name for a Sagan biography if anyone's looking for it's one. true. <laughs> <laughs> That's out there. Just just go run with that. Beyond the well, I'm going to quickly buy beyondtheturtleneck.com, <laughs> or or really beyondtheturtleneck.tv. <laughs> yeah, before somebody snatches it up. This goes so. I mean, forget nuclear winter. Imagine. Well, maybe that was see the turtleneck. He's like, if there's going to be a long term winter, better put on some turtlenecks. <laughs> Get right. ready. You know, and Steve Jobs clearly understood that as well. There was a conspiracy going on. Those crazy people in uh, California. Well, thank you. See, this this is you said you were sick, but in fact, you were you rose to the challenge, pointed out how the world is sick. (laughs) (laughs) If it works, yep. And the story of the doomsayers, the scientists, will continue next week. Mike. Milwaukee, thank you so much for sending in this idea and getting us back to the important stuff, the death of the planet, what we could or cannot do about it. Yeah, for getting us to focus on really helping. Our whole thing here is science communication. So, in fact, for those of you in the audience who want to send in ideas, or even just questions, because we can take a question and turn it into a, a show idea, as mm-hmm. we see here. Sure. It's, it's all science communication. That's what we're trying to do. And it's like, I'm, you know, at the beginning, I'm a documentary filmmaker, so I'm not a scientist. But like, as a documentary filmmaker, a big part of that job is taking things which are complicated and boiling it down and helping people understand, uh, but doing it through a story. So that's sort of what, another reason why this sort of is helpful coming to understand something. It's a story we're seeing take place. Send us your, what are your thoughts about climate change, about nuclear winter, about turtlenecks, dust storms, or even the new Mars landing, which was very exciting. We watched that yesterday, the yeah. landing, the InSight lander. Very exciting to, to see what's going to happen now. 
somebody posted a funny uh, thing on Twitter the other day. Uh, it said, this picture of Mars, and it said, Mars is now the only planet inhabited totally by robots. <laughs> that we know of. That we know of, exactly. It's pretty great. I mean, Mars is basically becoming like a giant robot war. There's going to be robot wars. I think that's what's going to happen, you know. Oh, that'd be cool. Once yeah. Curiosity trundles its way over to Insight, there's going to be a fight, you know. That they both have arms. <laughs> yeah, that'd be something to watch. Somebody got to do that. Robot versus robot. On Mars! Rover versus rover. Mike Holland of Milwaukee, thank you so much for sending in your idea. And as a sign of our gratitude, we will share the joy of finger puppetry with you, uh, provided by our friends at the Unemployed Philosophers Guild, philosophersguild.com, the makers of smart, funny toys for smart, funny people. We will be sending you a finger puppet of a beloved science or science fiction a beloved character from science or science fiction a beloved person from science and a beloved character from science fiction you know what I'm talking about Mike it's coming your way to be put on your finger to show proudly the world that you are an iffer you're a master iffer because your idea has been picked any of you out there in the audience, if you want to share us an idea too, you too might be chosen to be this. Your idea might be chosen to be the subject of a special episode of What the If. You could have your own finger puppet. Collect all 10 for 10 of your fingers. You could have science on one hand, five scientists and five science fiction characters on the other hand, and they can fight or work together. It's your choice. Thank you, Mike. Next week, we'll, we'll be back here in between. Follow us on Twitter if you're not already doing that. What the If Show. At What the If Show. You can share your ideas there. You can also find all of our episodes on our website, whattheif.com. And by the way, there's a word there, subscribe, a link. If you click on that word subscribe, boom, page comes up and it's super easy. You just click whatever you use to listen to podcasts, whether it's iTunes or Google Play or whatever, you click a button there, boom, you're done. It's magic. That's how easy it is. Again, we always say, if you enjoy the show, you can help us spread the word and help maybe educate more people and entertain more people by leaving us a review on iTunes. Really the one place, the main place to do it. Just go to iTunes, you know, find our What The If on iTunes and click reviews and click some stars. Five would be great. Don't worry about the global warming effects of us having five stars. We'll take it. <laughs> and if you can write a few words too, that's fantastic it's optional but super all right so we're gonna we're gonna keep watching the mars insight webpage and nasa tv channel for anything exciting there and we'll talk about that next week as well matt thank you certainly 
I guess this is what the scientists sitting inside that building-sized computer, that's something I want to hear more about, too. The paper comes out of the, you know, and they rip it off like a like we now rip off a credit card receipt, and they look at it, and they scream, What the if, if, if? Bye now.